Well, for the last two Sundays, we've looked at the lives of two kings in Israel's history, Solomon, who established the empire, and his son, Rehoboam, who split the empire into two parts, north and south. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Solomon is an example of a person who combined in himself two different qualities that don't really go together. He was, on one hand, a very faithful person, faithful to God. And at the same time, he compromised the faith at many specific points in his life. And I said a couple of weeks ago, when one generation compromises the faith, the next generation abandons the faith. And that's what we find. Solomon compromised the faith, and Rehoboam abandoned it for a godless life. And I said that this represents, um, to some degree, American culture at the present time. And I don't mean that there are distinct generations, like one generation failed and the next generation suffered. I mean that this pattern goes throughout life, and it seems like in the last hundred years, the people of God have in so many ways been represented by Solomon. There has been distinct faithfulness that in, in many ways is combined with a sense of compromise. And because of that, we are now reaping some of the consequences of it in that now many are openly abandoning the faith. The question I want to to answer this morning is, what must we do about it? Like, how do we respond to it? When we find ourselves in a cultural hurricane of opposition, what should we do? Um, we see as Christians that God's moral rules for life are, which at one time were like woven into the very fabric of the way Americans thought, it's been torn and, and it's um, been rent over the last hundred years. And now it's like a garment that's just being thrown away. And, and how should we respond to that? Well, the passage that our sister just read to us gives us direction that we need to pay attention to. The end of the story, according to scripture, is not the abandonment of God. When people abandon God, he does not necessarily abandon them. And when those people who abandon him are people who have been in a covenant relationship with him, as we're reading about in this passage, he certainly doesn't just abandon them. The reigns of Solomon and Rehoboam were followed by a brief reign for about three years of Rehoboam's son, his name was Abia, and then by the person who apparently was the son of Abia, Asa, the great king who renewed the covenant. And God gives us some direction here for what we should do in the midst of a cultural desertion of God and the deterioration and the stagnation of a culture that takes place when people abandoned God. Asa, we are told, took the throne at a young age. It would be good if you picked up a Bible. You may have set it down, but page 369. I'm going to, this morning, very much walk you through the passage that Mary Kay read to us, and it would be good for you to be able to look at it. Asa took the throne, perhaps as a minor, and the writer of Chronicles, if we follow his chronology in the chapter before what was read, it tells us that he 
soon, early in his reign, began spiritual reforms of the country. He was a worshiper of the Lord and was seeking to uh, build that into his reign. But then it seems that he turned to other and more pressing concerns as king, particularly the military and civic needs of the nation that he was ruling. And following that, about 10 years into his reign, the, the country was attacked by the Ethiopian army and the king of Ethiopia. And through reliance on God, they defeated the Ethiopian army. And it's immediately after that that the passage comes that was read. A prophet Azariah arises and he gives this powerful prophetic exhortation. He gives it to Asa the king and to the whole country of Judah, the southern kingdom, the one that was uh, where the temple was. We learn three things in this passage we want to think about together. Uh, Azariah gives a principle, and then he gives a prescription of what to do with that, and finally uh, an application is made to it. So this principle and prescription, and I guess you'd say a practical application. First, I want to think about the principle. Azariah says in verse 2, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. And he gives there a very basic principle about the spiritual life. And the principle says, if you seek God, you will find God. And if you desert God, God will desert you. And then what he does, he goes on, he gives them an illustration from uh, their own history that is meant to graphically portray for them exactly what that principle means. If you seek God, you will find God. And it's an illustration apparently from what we would call the book of Judges, a period of time of 300 plus years in the history of this people. It had only ended for them about 130 years before this point with the establishment of a king. Before that, the, the tribes were in a loose federation, and there was no central authority, and so the book of Judges describes a cycle that reappears throughout the book a number of times, and the cycle goes like this. The people would disobey God, and uh, he would bring them into some kind of problem that was usually oppression by a foreign enemy as a consequence. And then they would cry out to God for deliverance, and God would raise up a deliverer who was called a judge, and after that, there would be a period of peace. And then the people would disobey God and abandon him, and, and uh, the same cycle would begin. Now, he notes that principle in the passage, and um, he says, this is what you need to know and understand about this principle. It's been lived out many times before. So it says, verse 3, for a long time, Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. I want you to know, it's interesting in the passage, it always says, he was found by them. It doesn't say they found him. And I think that's significant. And the significance, I think, is that it's like, have you ever played hide-and-seek with a three-year-old? You can hide where a three-year-old will never find you. If you want to play hide-and-seek with a three-year-old, you have to be willing to be found as an adult. And it kind of pictures these people and God that way. They sought him 
But it was not because they sought him that they found it. It was because he was willing to be found by them, it says. Look back on your own history for a long period. You went without the guidance of God, and so you wandered away into foolish behaviors, which brought destructive consequences. But when you sought God, he saved you. I want to state the principle this way. When we recognize our inability to maintain our spiritual bearings in the midst of cultural opposition, and we turn to God and seek him with our whole heart, he will hear and reveal himself and pour out the blessings of his covenant. Now, you say, wait a minute, I thought the principle was, if you seek God, you'll find God, and only a preacher could turn that into like a a long run-on sentence. It's, it's a gift, and it's taking a long time to develop it, you know, so don't try to do this at home. But the fact is, it, this is what the principle says. When you find yourself with an inability to maintain our spiritual bearings in the midst of cultural opposition, and we turn to God and seek him with our whole heart, he will hear and reveal himself and pour out the blessings of his covenant. That's what... The, the prophet is saying that has application to us. Now, you might say, are you saying that we're at fault that we find ourselves in this position in the United States? You've come up with this church covenant that was handed out this morning. You know, does this mean that for 32 years we've been doing okay, but we really, we missed some main things, and now we're going to get it all right? Well, I'm glad you asked that. I hope you would ask it. Um, the answer is no and Yes. There are many reasons why Christians are struggling in North America. Uh, In one sense, forces way beyond our control and things that preceded us in the way people lived. It's like the people of God over the last hundred or more years have so been faithful and compromised the faith in such unique ways that we are brought at the present time in in a unique sense into like a vice in which all these things are coming to bear upon us, all of these changes and decisions and things that we have trouble figuring out what to do with. And there are many ways in which we can respond to that, and we all know that we, at various times, respond in these ways. One way to respond uh, is to feel a fear of being different and being marginalized, and we can withdraw into the safety of our Christian friends In our church family, we can avoid having anything to do with the troubling attitudes and behaviors around us. And many Christians are doing that. They've given up taking a public stand for anything. Their whole life is involved in just being with people who love Jesus because they figure things have gone too far in our country to deal with. And and that works, if that's your strategy, that works as long as your rallying cry is, we four and no more. You know, and it's not... The words of Jesus, go and make disciples of all the nations. That was his last command to us, go and make disciples. So withdrawing from society is simply not a biblical response to the Lord who on the last night of his life prayed that we, his followers, would live in the world but not be of the world. That is, we would make our homes in the world among worldly people and have to deal with them constantly but we would not adopt the values and standards and behaviors of the world while we did that. Now, another way we can respond is we can cower in fear under the unrelenting pressure of the secular worldview. And many people are doing this. It shows up when Christians are simply unwilling to take a stand on anything. So at the water cooler, someone says, why would anyone oppose gay marriage? How could you tell someone 
um, who they can love? That seems like an unanswerable question. And and we don't want to look different and out of sync. And and, and so we don't say anything. We say, well, that's a really difficult issue. And I know what it's like. I have a larger family who doesn't agree with everything (laughs) that I think. Or we can do what some Christians are doing today. We can backslide. And by that, I mean we can kind of give up any public recognition of the Christian faith and say, well, I'm going to hold to him in my heart. But what happens when we backslide is that we begin to live by the values and behaviors and attitudes of the people around us. And according to Scripture, that's a very dangerous position to be in, and it's not the scriptural prescription for what we're facing as Christians. Or we can be angry. There's a lot of people like that. We can become strident and offensive. We can call people names and ridicule people who are struggling with things uh, very seriously. Uh, We can imply that people aren't living as God wants them to, like we are, or somehow worth less uh, than we are, or something like that, as though we've forgotten the times in our life when we flagrantly dishonored God and broke his moral law. That's not the Christian position, to to simply get angry and call people out on their sin. The fact is, we can respond a lot of different ways. And I think here at Grace, there's always been a lot of people who, who have tried and wanted to love and to seek God and to serve God. But we know, even those of us who have done that over years, that sometimes those other three things characterize the way we feel and how we respond. I'm saying that this is very complicated, but when you find that the, the system, like a vice, has its grip and it's putting pressure on you, you have to respond in some way, and that's what God calls us to do. And this principle holds true for us, whether or not we ourselves have been unfaithful. The fact is, we live in unique times. It calls for a unique response. And that's why I'm saying, when we recognize our inability to maintain our spiritual bearings in the midst of cultural opposition, and we turn to God and seek him with our whole heart, he will hear and reveal himself and pour out the blessings of his covenant. That's the message of Azariah. And then, based on that principle, he gives a prescription. Now, in the passage, there's actually a command. It comes in verse 7. He says, but you take courage to not let your hands be weak. But what the prescription is is embedded in the history. He describes, you remember back in the days of Judges, here's what went on. And the way he describes it gives to us an understanding of how to respond. It's in verse 4. He says, but when in their distress, they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him He was found by them. That is the prescription. Turn to God and seek him. First, he says, you must turn to the Lord. Turning is the essence of repentance. Repentance means to turn away from something to God. Repentance involves, first of all, the recognition of a problem. I realize that that, um, Opposition has caused me to shy away from standing forthrightly for God, full-hearted devotion to God in his way, and in the recognition of that need for renewed faithfulness and for greater commitment to God, I turn to him. The image of turning is important because it implies that there was something about our focus that was wrong. 
Our focus may have been subtly shifted from God to the problem itself and trying to figure out what to do with it. It may have been shifted to sin. It may have been shifted to our own attempt to figure out what to do with the problem. Whatever it is, our focus has subtly shifted from what it should, and God wants us to turn from that and turn back to him. That's the first thing. And then he says, seek God. That's the second part. Turn to him and seek him. Now, seeking God involves the recognition, the realization that we are facing something that is beyond our human ability to deal with. We do not have the wisdom or the strength to know how to respond to the situation, and so we ask God to help us. We need God to enlighten and empower us to live for him. So we ask him to help and guide us. And this is our prescription as well. We're living in a society that is rapidly turning away from God, running away from God. But God has called us, if we are Christians, into his kingdom. And his kingdom is a kingdom that is not present yet. He is making adherence to the kingdom. And and we who are a part of his kingdom have our citizenship, we are told in scripture, in two places. We are citizens of an earthly realm, in our case, for most of us, the United States, And we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we are told which one has priority. The kingdom of heaven has to have first place because it will last forever. This one won't. And so we are called to live essentially by values and standards and behaviors that represent a kingdom that isn't here yet, even while we live in another realm. And yet what we find increasingly in our day is that our culture's attitudes and values and behaviors are increasingly out of sync with the kingdom of God. And we have this uncomfortable realization that it's like we're caught between kingdoms that are in conflict, where we belong to one of those kingdoms, but we have our foot in the other one as well during our earthly life. And we find that our position and the world's position are not compatible And how do we represent God and live openly as adherents of his kingdom when we find ourselves in such a situation? Well, Azariah gives the solution. He says, uh, turn to God and seek him. That's his word. And the passage tells us exactly how they applied it. They took his prescription and they put it into their situation. First, we read in verse 8 that Asa called for them to turn from sin to God in some specific ways that applied to them. They destroyed all of the idols that they found around them, which would have been in their homes on the mantle, and it would have been up in the, in the mountains and the altars. They tore these things down, and, and uh, in Jerusalem they went about and they cleansed it of idols. And then he called them to restore the great altar of burnt offering in front of the temple where the priests were to offer sacrifice every day. And that was just the beginning, but it was in their setting like the place to start. And then what Asa did is he called for a national meeting of worship. We're told that in the 15th year of his reign, in the third month, which would have been the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, as it's called in the Old Testament, that the people came there. Even faithful, believing people from the northern kingdom came down because they knew that God was at work and that that was where the temple was and the priesthood that God had given to them. They came down and they worshiped God together and they sacrificed in abundance. And then we read in verse 12, look at it with me. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul 
but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. This is their unique response. The Azariah didn't tell them to do this. This was their application of this principle. They entered into a covenant. Now, this was not the covenant that was already established. They lived in a covenant with God that he had established at Mount Sinai when he had given his law and made them his people. And that relationship was one that God established and God was, from his side, bound to keep it, but the people kept breaking it. And what they did is they recognized they were not doing well at it. They were not devoted to the covenant, so they turned and they sought God, and they agreed with each other, here's what we're going to do. We're going to covenant together to serve the Lord. They said, we're going to uphold the covenant with God. They returned, and they said, we want to keep it with our whole heart. No. <clears throat> It's troubling, verse, uh, verse 13 says, but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death. It's important to understand that that was a significant part of their covenant. They lived under what we call the Old Covenant. It's represented in the Old Testament. The covenant made through Moses with the people of Israel. They were a nation-state We live under the new covenant made through Christ, and there's a great relationship between those two. But the fact is, under the old covenant, Deuteronomy 17, the law says that covenant breakers were to be put to death. So all they were doing was seeking to put into practice what they had been told to do under their covenant. It has no application today because the new covenant established in Christ makes no provision for forcing people to obey. And taking their life if they don't obey. That was part of the time when the people of God were one ethnic group living in one location with a central place of worship. But verse 14, they guarantee their commitment with an oath, a vow of obedience to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. Now, as I've been praying and reading the scriptures and talking with others during the last year, I've come to the conclusion that this is what we need to do. I can tell you more tonight about how I came to that conclusion, but what we need to do is we need to covenant together to turn to God and seek him with our whole heart. For now, let me just note that the elders are going to give us all fall to work out what this means. The covenant that you received this morning, which is proposed by the elders, We're going to be looking at that on Sunday mornings and in our small groups so that everyone can ponder and understand it and decide what to do with it. But what you need to know today is that we are what we're proposing has grown out of a long period of praying and talking with different people and pondering how should we respond to the cultural situation in which we find ourselves. Now we aren't proposing this because we have a church, as a church, have been in some way unfaithful, and now we're going to turn around and be faithful. I don't think that's the case for us. We are proposing it because we're a medium-sized church in a rather obscure part of the United States, but we are also a part of the Christian movement in the United States. And the Christian movement as a whole, we would have to say, is struggling in significant ways. The Pew Foundation research said two years ago, that church attendance 
is declining and continues to decline at a rather rapid pace. There's decreased interest in the gospel among the younger generations, even those who have grown up in the church. There's rampant immorality and greed among church leaders, and it is regularly blasted out on the airwaves of our country. There's the rise of large and popular churches, some of whom are not standing for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, And let me tell you, we live in the country that for almost 300 years has been the greatest missionary force in history. More missionaries sent out, more money sent into missions than any country ever in history at any time. And it's faltering. It's faltering so much as there's a decline in interest in spreading the gospel around the world that foreign countries like South Korea and countries in Africa are sending missionaries to the United States. I mean, we live at at a time, and we could go on, that for the sake of our own church's integrity and continued faithfulness and for the sake of the body of Christ in the United States, we need to determine to live for God. We need to turn to God and seek him with all our heart, with all our soul. Now, let's put together what it is we read here. The, the passage also goes on to tell us some of the things that happened as a result of what they did. Um, as a result of their renewed faith and repentance and mutual commitment to live for God, we read in verse 15 these words, And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, for they had sworn it with all their heart and had sought him with their whole desire, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. First of all, as I mentioned, he was found by them. Those words have great significance. What they looked for, they found. But the question is, how did they know that? How did they know that they were found, that he was found? How did they know that God was pleased with what they did? Well, part of it is by how they felt. It says that they rejoiced over the oath that they took, for they had sworn with all their heart and with all their soul. We are told that something happened inside of them over this commitment that they had made to God. Why? Because they desired to seek him and to serve him above all other things, and God confirmed it by the way that they felt. Now, Many of us, myself included, have a Christian faith that at times lacks an emotional element. Um, we're, we're, we're afraid of having our faith be simply an emotional experience. We know that that doesn't last, and that's not what Scripture aims at. And we shouldn't want simply an emotional experience. But in our effort to avoid emotion, sometimes I think we miss the real emotion that God wants to give us. And that is this sense, this internal conviction that God is pleased with us that we are doing exactly what he wants us to do. That sense of joy and contentment and inward conviction when we seek him and we find him. him. And rather than fear, we find our fear replaced by a sense of contentment and peace. And rather than weariness or anger or withdrawal, we feel this holy confidence that regardless what our culture is doing, we have the the conviction that God will strengthen us to live for him. That's the emotion they experienced. This sense of certainty 
that God was pleased with them, that they were doing what he wanted and that they could live for him. God wanted them to renew the covenant. When they did, he flooded them with that confidence, and that's what we need as well. That's what God did for them. There's another thing the passage points to in terms of what God did for them. He gave them the ability to do what they asked. They asked for the strength to do what God told them to do. Now, how do we know that? I'm going to read one verse that's beyond where it was read for this morning, verse 16. It says, Even Maacah, his mother, King Asa removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. Now, that's kind of an interesting historical note, but let me tell you what that's really saying. Queen Mother was not just a title. Queen Mother in the ancient world was like the most important person in the royal household. She ran the household. She was responsible for the whole royal household for the raising of the children who were going to become the future rulers of the entire kingdom. And even the king was to be respectful to the Queen Mother. To remove such a person was a sign that she had failed in some significant way, so significant that she could no longer fulfill her duties. It was rarely done, but that's what happens here. King Asa, when he said, I want to do what God tells me to do, I want to enter into this agreement with others that we will live for the Lord, the first thing he realized is, I have a mother who has made a, a, an idol out of the Canaanite fertility goddess and set it up in a prominent place, and he had it torn down. Her failure was the very failure that had brought about the problem. She had abandoned the covenant and worshipped false gods, so God strengthened Asa to remove her. And imagine what the, what the impact was in the houses of people that faced much less than that. After all, under every covenant, old and new, it always it has families as central to the covenant. Commitment to family involves the commitment of parents to turn to God from sin and to seek to live in such a way that they will train their children to love and serve God. It involves firmly guiding children in the ways of the Lord. It's a commitment to love the children to provide for the children and not to give in to the children when they start to say, but everybody's doing it, whatever it is at that point. It means a commitment to each other in the covenant community to help each other be those kinds of parents. And imagine what happened when the king of the country went to the extent of removing the queen mother because she was an idolater so that he could cleanse his household and the worship of God. People were strengthened to do that. And it implies that as a result of this, the entire people were strengthened to do what God wanted them to do. Oh, how we need that now. We need God and we need each other if we're going to live in obedience to what Jesus Christ taught. And it ends with these words in verse 15, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Not sure what that means. I don't think it necessarily means that all cultural opposition against God ceased. It's not a promise that when we turn to God and seek Him and we find ourselves in that position of knowing His pleasure 
and his peace and the strength to live for him. It doesn't mean that everyone in the nation will do that and the nation will all of a sudden be healed and go in the right direction necessarily, but it means that we will find ourselves mysteriously able to withstand the onslaught and to be the servants of God that he calls us to. And we will do that to the delight of God and with the mutual help of each other. And that's, I believe, what God calls us to today, to so commit ourselves to one another to live for God and to help each other do that, to turn to God, to seek him with our whole heart. And we're going to spend all fall considering what that would look like in our community. So let's pray. Again, our gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are able to guide and lead us through it. We pray that you would help us as a people to understand these things and to consider how we as individuals, as married couples, as parents, as children, as families, how we should respond to this in a way that will honor you. We know that we live at times that are uniquely difficult in so many ways, and that's a mystery to us. But at the same time, we are very grateful that you have given to us your spirit and you have given to us the fellowship of the people of God that we might seek to live for you and to represent that kingdom which you tell us will never be shaken. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.